this and say, well, we used to all have all this money and now Google has got it. It's just idiotic. It's like you're a nation liner company and you're saying, well, Boeing stole all of our money. Welcome to Crawford Media with me, Hal Crawford. Today, I get the chance to pick the brains of one of the smartest analysts in the world of tech, Benedict Evans. Evans is a former partner at venture capitalist Andreessen Horowitz, and he's also a history graduate from Cambridge, which you may pick up when you hear him make classical allusions and refer to different centuries. Now, Evans speaks quickly, and you get the impression that's to keep up with the speed of his thoughts, and what follows may feel a little bit breathless. We cover a lot of ground. If you're listening to this and you don't already subscribe to my newsletter, please search up Crawford Media and sign up. And if you like what I'm doing, can you please share this with your friends? Because word of mouth is very powerful. Now, here's today's guest. I'm Benedict Evans, and I'm a analyst and consultant and writer. And I try and explain or translate and indeed understand what the sort of fundamental strategic shifts, macro trends are in technology. Like what are the sort of the underlying changes that sort of are shaping what gets built and what will work? A reason I wanted to speak to you, Benedict, you make a a wonderful newsletter that is really informative and, and sort of covers this incredible gamut of technology, media, really anything that's happening in the world of the internet and regulation. And maybe we could start by talking about display advertising, which has been pretty much taken over by uh, the digital platform companies, particularly Facebook and Google. And there doesn't seem to be that much in it for traditional publishers anymore. I think the kind of the core of this is that advertisers had four or five different choices in 1990, and today they have many more choices. And in particular, the traditional print media had an oligopoly of a certain kind of reach and a certain kind of advertising that meant if you wanted to do a certain thing with your business, you had to go through a print publisher. And the internet meant that suddenly you had all these new options for how you might reach those customers. And so if you were, say, you know, a car dealership in 1990, you were in San Francisco, you were probably putting a 20-page insert into the Sunday paper and paying the Sunday paper to do that. And today you're running a website that lists all your inventory and buying a search ad on Google. But most of your money is going into running running that website. And you're not really buying advertising at all. You're buying a little bit, you know, that search placement ad in Google. But, you know, you're not advertising in the way that you used to be. And if you're a real estate agent now and you're listing your properties on Zillow or Rightmove or whatever the local portal is, and you're paying, you might be paying them advertising revenue, you might also be paying them sales commission. And so that isn't even advertising at all. It's something else. And the way that you're spending money to reach your customer has been transformed. And the kind of the kinds of products that you might buy have been transformed. And Google and Facebook are sort of the biggest and most visible manifestations of that. 
they provide this completely different way for an advertiser to reach their consumer. The irony is that actually the great majority of Google and Facebook's ad business comes from small and medium businesses, many of which weren't really advertising at all before the internet. So we've had this sort of fundamental change in what advertising even means, in who's advertising, in what the options are for an advertiser. And then we have these people who used to have this oligopoly on whatever it was, you know, a quarter to a third of total national ad spend, who've suddenly seen all of their money go away because their product was you know, rather like CD sales. It was this sort of bundle imposed upon the customer by you know, a group of oligo- oligopolists. And their products just the appeal of their product to advertisers just disintegrated. And they're sitting in the wreckage kind of complaining bitterly that somebody stole all their fucking money. There's another aspect to this, which is, which is kind of crucial, is that as consumers, we now have many more ways to spend our time than reading newspapers, and many more ways to get information than reading newspapers. And so it used to be that you bought the newspaper and you read, read 40 or 50 pages of it. And now, well, the newspaper has a website and I might read five pages of it because there's so many other things that I could read. In a sense, this is a rerun of what TV did to newspapers. If you look back, I mean, the chart that I I produce regularly for the US and the UK, I'd imagine it's the same in Australia, is that newspaper subscriptions have have adjusted for population. Newspaper sales have been falling since the Second World War. If you go back to the 1920s and 30s, the biggest circulation was actually evening papers that don't exist anymore. And I mean, there's like the Evening Standard in London, maybe there's a couple of others, but that was, you know, that was half the industry and it's it's just completely gone. And of course, that got killed by TV. You get home and what do you do? Well, now you can watch television. You don't have to read the newspaper. The morning papers obviously survived a lot longer, but there also used to be a lot more of them. And to the chart you're referring to, you know, it took me ages, so I, I use it a lot. And, and what you see is circulation sort of flat until the 70s and then falling, but circulation per capita falling since the 50s. So the population is going up, circulation isn't going up, and then both of them go down. But the other side of this is that page count shoots up, ad revenue shoots up, and employment shoots up. So what's happening is you're shifting from sort of a 10-page newspaper that gets sold to everyone in the country to a 50-page newspaper that gets sold to fewer people but has way more ad inventory and way more ad dollars and employs two or three times more journalists in order to fill those pages. One of the interesting things about that, that, that chart is that it speaks to the fact that like, the newspaper that we had in about 1995 was not like the natural eternal order of things. It was already a newspaper industry that looked radically different from the industry of kind of 1950 or 1920 as a reaction to shrinking readership. It basically, you know, you can characterize it in different ways, but basically it moves up market and hires a huge number of university graduates to write lifestyle pieces and feature stories and investigative journalism, all this sort of stuff that no one was doing in 1930, um, and milked the advertisers for all they were worth by providing all that extra inventory and charging for it. And then, of course, the internet comes along and suddenly, well, there's other ways I can read 50 pages every day or other things mm-hmm. that I can read. Um, and I think that sense of, like, on the one hand, the ad, the opportunities for advertisers just got completely transformed. And the other hand, other hand the things that your, your, or your audience was reading got completely transformed. And to look at this and say, well, we used to all have all this money and now Google has got it, it's just idiotic. It's like kind of it's as though, it's as though you're an ocean liner company, you're an ocean liner company, and you're saying, "Well, Boeing stole all of our money." Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's not again. That's not really what happened. Something that people might bring into this argument and do, in fact, bring into this argument is 
the idea that funding news is important and that there are certain kinds of public interest journalism, like court reporting and... Yeah, local reg- politics, local, local corruption, poli- all this yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you see that the funding of media companies, that, that, that there's this aspect of public interest journalism as well? Yeah, so I, I don't think I'd disagree with that in any way. And there, there are plenty of people in America who you would disagree with it, but I, I, I'd agree with that entirely. Another way of, of thinking about this is that newspapers were... A bun- were two businesses. They were the fourth estate and public service journalism and lifestyle things and you know, pieces about you know how to have sex and all the stuff that then the sport and everything. It's all of that. And then there was a light manufacturing business that was about trucking and printing presses. And mm. it's the trucking and the printing press business that was destroyed. And that was what was actually paying for the fourth estate. And that's where they're. And so, of course, if you go back to the kind of the 90s, you see all these newspapers talking about how the Internet's going to be fantastic because they won't have to pay so much to print all the newspapers. Mm. It's like, well, they're right. They're not paying as much to print newspapers. It's like it's like one of those Greek oracles, you know, like the oracle that said to King Croesus, you know, if you invade Persia, a great kingdom will be destroyed. And so the, the kind of kind of to go back to your, 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 the core of your point, how do we pay for public service journalism? Well, I think a good starting point has to be to say that you're asking for a subsidy. Yeah. Because once you start saying this has social purpose or political or cultural purpose, you're no longer talking about economic value. You're saying society should pay for this. Well, fine, that's a perfectly legitimate political opinion to take. But that is a request for a subsidy. You know, it's almost a truism. You're saying that it shouldn't be met. You're saying that it should have more money than it can get by charging. Mm. And I think the interesting tension in the first, the Australian, and then uh, recently the French discussion around whether it's competition law, which, which I can, I'm sure we can get into, is that as soon as you start saying, well, we think this particular company deserves more money because it so- has social value, that's not a competition argument. That's a subsidy argument. Right. I was going to leave the Australian Media Bargaining Code to the end, leave the best till last. Let's discuss it now, seeing as um, we've come to that point. I have argued um, against it. However, it has been used as a bargaining tool, a shakedown, in in fact. And as a result, there are several hundred million dollars over five years are going to flow from Facebook and Google to Australian media companies. So do the ends justify the means? Well, so let's sort of think about different ways of of getting at this. So if you're going to construct a funding mechanism for any part of society, really, that funding mechanism should be sort of sustainable and it should be based on some sort of coherent logic. It should be intellectually defensible. It shouldn't really be based on an argument that disintegrates as soon as anybody asks any questions. It shouldn't be based on you pretending that black is white and that the moon is made of blue cheese. It okay. should be based on some basic intellectual honesty. Just, just, just assume I don't agree with you here. Okay, Let well, me, so let's actually yeah. let's actually kind of go. With, okay, so yeah. this is a, this is sort of theory of the sort of the, the steel man. You should explain the argument better than the person making it could explain it, or at any rate, you should explain it in a sort of a way that they would agree with. And so the competition argument here is they're presented with a sort of take it or leave it proposition. Either 
place their content on Google and fa- and and let Facebook you know, share those those previews, or don't be there at all. And this is unfair. And the only reason that they can't go and bargain with Google and Facebook is because they have, they have so much market power. Now, meanwhile, Google and Facebook, although they don't make any money explicitly from news, they have value in being complete. They have value in letting you share things with your friends and having those look good. They have value in you being able to Google and show, go to Google and search for anything. And so the argument is Google and Facebook actually need news. News need Google and Facebook, but they should be able to go and negotiate for, for money for that. And if Google and Facebook didn't have the market power that they did, then you could go to them and you could say, well, we want you to pay us this much every time we show up in search or every time somebody shows us and sees us in the newsfeed. So I understand it like that's the argument. Now, I, th- I think that's the best argument. Yeah. However, there's two very basic gaping holes in this. The first proposition is Google and Facebook would pay for this if they didn't have market power. Okay. So does anybody else who doesn't have market power pay for this? I don't. Nobody who writes a link pays to write the link. Nobody has ever paid to write a link. There are all sorts of other people who link to newspapers and they don't pay. And the newspapers don't ask them to pay. So why is it, you know, you don't need to run the counterfactual and say, well, what would happen if Google and Facebook didn't have market power? You know, you can look at the rest of the internet. No one has ever paid for for writing links. The second kind of gaping hole in this is, so why is it only Google and Facebook and not everybody else? The second gaping hole is, Okay, so you think you should get some sort of share of revenue if your news links show up in Google search. What about all the other links in Google search? Why aren't they getting paid? Mm. Why is it only the links to the newspaper websites that should get paid and not all the others? Ah, well, news is different. Oh, economically or socially? Okay, that's a subsidy model. That's not a competition model. Mm. Meanwhile... Take the step now. Of course, if you were to embrace the idea that, okay, anybody should be able to go to Google and Facebook and demand money to appear um, in search, well, what share of that would the newspapers get? What share are they of the links? 2%, 3%, 5%? I mean, one of the Australian newspaper companies I mean, almost literally came out and said, well, um, we think we're 10% of Google's um, traffic, so we think we should get 10% of Google's revenue. Okay, so presumably the other 90% of Google's revenue should go to everybody else he's linked to from Google. So Google doesn't have any revenue and Google doesn't exist. Benedict, I, I need to get your take on subscriptions because unfortunately the average number of new subscriptions for consumers is one. And as everyone gets onto the bandwagon, a lot of other businesses also have subscription models. And personally, I've had enough of shelling out, you know, another 10 bucks a month. So if subscription fatigue is a thing, well, first of all, I might have to get your take on that. Is subscription fatigue a thing? Well, so we go up a level here. You go back kind of 10 years ago, there was a pretty wide consensus that what were called newspaper paywalls were a terrible idea, that only somebody who'd never used the internet, didn't understand the internet, would even propose this. This is never going to work. People won't do it. And I think we now sort of understand that actually there's sort of, there's clearly a sort of set of media publications that can 
charge us. And what actually happens is sort of the leading titles with the strongest brands can charge a subscription in its smaller week. And, and whether it's sort of a large generalist publication like the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, the Times in the UK and the New York Times can charge a subscription. Niche publications like The Economist or The New Yorker can also charge a subscription. And it's a sort of the second tier people in the middle that don't have a really strong brand of their own that get squeezed out. So it's a case of sort of the strong gets stronger. But for those you know, particular brands, then, you know, that absolutely does work. I mean, you, as an aside, you could make an argument that one of the big problems for regional American newspapers is actually the New York Times, that the New York Times has become a national newspaper, um, which it never was before, and has sort of squeezing out all of America's regional city newspapers. So subscription worked for a certain kind of title. I think the challenge you have now with everybody else trying to do it is, you know, I'll take two or three and therefore I'll pick the strongest brands, but I won't pick 10. You have the same thing happening, incidentally, in TV at the moment. You know, instead of your $100 cable bill, there's now 20 people who want 10 or 20 bucks a month from you. And which ones will you take? And will you take all of them? And how is that going to work? And what's the aggregation model there? And of course, you have the same thing in subscribing now, you know, the, 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 the topic of the moment is newsletters. I think the interesting, one of the interesting things about newsletters is that somehow paying for a blog, one person's blog doesn't work, but paying for more or less exactly the same thing by email does that you've shifted the psychology or the value proposition that somehow you're getting. I mean, my theory is that when you're getting a tangible thing in your inbox every day, every week or every day, that has more value than the same thing appearing on a website that you might or might not remember to, to visit. But regardless, the, the, new, the subscription newsletter somehow sort of changes the psychology of payment. And so, and there's a lot of other things floating around that change that psychology of payment, whether it's sort of tipping, only fans, tickets, special events, live streaming, of course. Um, and there's all sorts of different ways that you can kind of repackage and reconceptualize what it is for somebody to pay. Mm. So micropayments, there's a couple of startups in this part of the world and no doubt elsewhere, but I'm, I'm aware of, uh, of two, one called Few Cents out of um, Singapore and one called Spot Pass out of Sydney. And mm. they are seeking to exploit a couple of changes. One is the changes in the payments technology that makes it cheaper per Per payment, and the other is just the much greater prevalence of subscriptions and paywalls. Both of those companies make the argument quite well that there are a whole bunch of people for an individual publisher with a paywall who are never going to subscribe, and they will offer you a way to monetize that on your site. So it's not a blend or model where they aggregated and microcharged. It's a button on the site to pay. In your view, is there a is there a future there? So, sort of general venture capital maxim: the fact that fifty people have tried this before and failed means that a lot of people think it would be a good idea, but it's a lot harder than it looks. Hmm. And that's more or less the case here. People have been—I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I would denigrated. I just sort of merely observe a lot of clever people have tried and failed to make this work. Hmm. And it could be. And it's some combination of consumer psychology and getting the technology to be completely seamless and getting things like payment processing to be completely seamless. So there's a whole bunch of sort of psychology, marketing, packaging, description. Like what are the actual kind of, what's the actual user experience like? You have to work out a user experience that makes sense to the user. Mm. Second, you have to get the technology and the payment processing and the payment processing costs to work. 
thirdly, you need to get, you really need to have critical mass of enough publishers that it makes, again, that it makes sense for a consumer because you want it to be one click and one click on anything as opposed to I've got to fish out a credit card and sign up to this company. Because as soon as you ask for a credit card, you're screwed because you've got, you know, 3% plus, you know, 30 cents a transaction. So you've got to have some kind of universal sign-in across everything. And you've got to be doing enough of them that your payment processing costs don't destroy the whole thing. And mm. so you've got to have a critical mass of publishers. And then you've got, then you've got the problem of the publishers all hate each other and don't want to give you control of their customer. And so you've got the politics of it um, as well. And so you've got the UX and the network effect problem and the consumer experience. And there's a whole bunch of, I mean, there's probably more things in here as well. Mm. Now, none of this is kind of technically insolvable. There's no law of physics or kind of computer science problem that says you can't do it. And, you know, Substack points to the way, fact that, you know, some, that, you know or paid newsletters point to the fact that yeah, if you can somehow recharacterize it, you can actually do make something that you can actually make it work if you make it look like something else. Mm. Um, and so there is, there must, you know, there, there's certainly something there. So to my point, like a lot of people have tried and failed and that mm. tells you two things, like mm. there's something there, but it's a lot harder than it sounds. I mean, I think, What's one of the things that's sort of happened recurrently over the last 20 years is a sort of aggregation, disaggregation of people creating ideas, content, analysis, writing, whatever it is. And so in a different world, you can see that with Instagram. And Instagram, one of the things that Instagram does is unbundle glossy magazines. So you can follow, whether you're following somebody who actually is or was or could be a journalist at a, a glossy magazine, or you're directly following the photographer who might be writing for that magazine, working for that magazine. Or, of course, in the influencer thing, you have, you know, influence, some, of, some influencer journalists or models, some are not. Though it's kind of a new sort of form of recommendation. Or you might be following the brand itself or you might be following the celebrity. And there's a sort of, there is a narrative, incidentally, that Instagram basically killed the paparazzi because, and killed gossip magazines because now the celebrities can, can root around it and go direct. They're not dependent on paparazzi and gossip magazines to get to their audience. And so there's a sort of a bundling, unbundling thing there. Now, ironically, some of the leading writers on, who launched on Substack had had their own, public, their own blogs 10 years ago with them got hired into big east coast publications and have now spun back out again into their own property and so there's that cycle going back and forth there's mm. value in that aggregation and then there's mm. value in breaking it apart again and it used to be that you know the economics of printing and what have you meant that there was only one way that you could do this mm. and that's changed just as in fact you know that it changed before with the sort of the evolution of newspaper business i mean you know go back you know 1800 there's you know I mean, the 1800 there's a bunch of newspapers that are all sort of five pages and they've got circulation is measured in the thousands and 1900 you know suddenly everyone's literate and steam printing um printing presses and railways and mean so the newspaper production has become massively cheaper and there's dozens or hundreds of newspapers in the u.s is like 20 there are like 20,000 newspapers but you know there's 15 daily or 20 or 30 daily papers in new york, in new york and london and then there's a wave of consolidation that and then that kind of continues all the way, you know, and it's, it's kind of, which is kind of to the point, you know, it's a quote from Craig Barksdale, there's only two ways to make money in the business, bundling and unbundling. 
And right now we're going through this sort of, we've gone through this massive wave of unbundling. It's a news, you know, all the content got broken apart from the 50 page newspaper or the 300 page magazine and got splintered into a thousand places. Google and Facebook in some senses bundle it. They aggregate it up again, particularly that's what Instagram in some ways is doing. Is it's, it's aggregating all of that stuff up where previously it would be on a million different blogs and you'd never find it. But then you reach a point where, okay, but there's 10,000 people I could be following on Instagram. Hmm. Uh, Netflix. Uh, now, I wanted to put to you, would Netflix or could Netflix ever consider getting into news? So, I'm trying to think. Well, so there's this great phrase from Coca-Cola, which is share of throat, which is to say Coca-Cola doesn't think of its competition as just people making, you know, sweetened soda water they think of it in terms of what would you what else could you be drinking and why and there's a similar point for netflix that netflix is you know what is netflix's competition well it's what do you do for four or five hours in the evening sitting in front of a screen that's where that's the spectrum of their their competition do they feel that news is competition to them not really, no. It's not competition in time spent. I mean, this goes back to our conversation about Google and, and news code and everything else. Like, there's, you know, the, the, there's this there's this great moment in Mad Men where one of the characters gets into an elevator with Don Draper and looks at him and says, "I feel bad about you, bad for you, Don." And Don looks at him and says, "I don't think about you at all." <laughs> and you know, people in the newspaper industry sort of sometimes give the impression that they think everyone in Silicon Valley is obsessed with them, and they're really not. Like news is not news is a small you know in economic terms and in time spent terms news is not an important industry it's socially politically important but the money is not important well you saw this particularly there's this wonderful quote kind of go back to where we were before but there's this wonderful quote from the, the french competition authority we're saying it's completely unacceptable that google proposes that we should value news links the same way we value news links to anything else and if you're at google you're like wait, wait what why, why, well, why then, then how are we supposed to value them? Now, that, at the moment you say that, you've abandoned any pretense that this is about economics or business. It's about something else. Okay. The regulation of, in, of the internet is something you point out that uh, in a, a sort of a historical phase that we're entering that we should just deal with. Yes, the internet will be regulated as everything else has been. I think one of your examples was the aviation industry. So there's, there's, a, there's a very general and a very specific point in there. I mean, in general, I think technology is going to be regulated in the same sense that cars are regulated, which if you pause and think about that for a minute is, is a slightly meaningless statement because, of course, cars aren't regulated. And lots of individual aspects of cars are regulated. You know, speed limits have nothing to do with emission standards, for example, you know, there's sort of 20 or 30 different aspects of cars that are regulated by different agencies for different reasons, solving different problems. You know, teenage boys getting drunk and driving too fast has nothing to do with GM bullying its suppliers. And so I think that same thing sort of applies to technology that we say we'll regulate technology, but that doesn't really mean anything. There's a lot of different things that are happening within this. Now, in privacy, again, privacy is a, is a broad topic. What's happening at the moment is that the advertising, online advertising, has built this sort of vast inverted pyramid on top of this thing called the cookie, 
which was never really intended for any of this, but was sort of somehow the, tech, the ad, ad tech industry built this sort of enormous superstructure precariously balanced on top of that. And what it does is allow you to unbundle the targeting from the content. So in the print world, I put a car ad in a car magazine and I put a makeup ad in a fashion magazine and, you know, I put an ad for rich, for an ad for expensive watches in magazines that get bought by rich people. So you're targeting based on the context. Whereas what the cookie let me do was show you car ads if you looked at car websites on places that aren't car websites. So I can target based on sort of some sense of what this IP address or this web browser or the person using this web browser might be interested in, as opposed to what site you're on. And for a whole bunch of reasons, this, you know, this got more and more sophisticated, more and more complex, and you sort of aggregate all of this up. And so you start getting, you know, building these profiles that, that might know quite a lot about the different things that this cookie is interested in. And eventually you might even be able to identify who it is. Although actually the advertisers don't care. They just want to show watch ads to people who buy watches. This all sort of happens to collide in this place that some people think is, is this huge sort of social problem. And now a combination of technology decisions, business decisions by Google and Apple, which control between them control all the web browsers, almost all the web browsers, and laws from the EU, from California, from a bunch of other places, mean that's sort of getting turned off. Um, now, Apple already sort of does this. Google is now going to do it as well. But then you run into, just to my point about regulation, you run into this big regulatory conflict because you know, who is Google to make that decision? And with Apple to make that decision. And so now you have competition authorities saying, well, hang on a second. Google is abusing its market dominance of web browsers in order to damage other advertising companies because, and this is sort of circling in in concentric circles in on your question, if I can't target across multiple sites, I can only target within one site. Well, that's good for the New York Times and for Google and for Facebook. It kind of screws all the small publishers that were getting, you know, they were bleeding off ads from watch, ad, watch ads from pub from watch sites and showing them on their own site instead. Um, so there's a lot of sort of interesting moving parts here. It's, so it's fascinating if you look at the settings on your iPhone, there's a, there's a section called privacy. And right up at the top, it's like, you know, do you want to allow apps to trials to track you? And they will track you and, you know, understand what you're doing on the internet. Scroll two or three feet down to the bottom of the page and you've got Apple advertising. Apple personalized advertising doesn't track you. Tap here to find out all the things that we do. And then you read it and you're like, there's an awful lot of stuff that sounds like tracking to me. Mm. But it's tracking that's done on the device and doesn't leave the device. So mm. why is it okay for my iPhone to look at everything that I do and use that to show ads, but not okay for a Google computer to look at everything that I do and show me mm. ads? Mm. Like, what exactly is it that's, that's wrong in that? And I don't think there's a, I don't actually think we have a very kind of coherent sort of understanding of this, which is actually, I think, is, is it's, you know, sort of a sort of meta observation. It's kind of interesting that people keep trying to frame this because when people try and frame it, it suggests that, which is where you're sort of trying to win the argument by producing a different definition rather than actually arguing. Mm. And so, you know, the classic case of this is are you pro-life or pro-choice? 
Mm. Well, everyone's pro-life and everyone's pro-choice. So hang on. So what exactly are we talking about here? Mm. And the same thing for you get this ridiculous phrase surveillance capitalism, which to me, I think, is a sort of really grotesque insult to everybody who's actually lived in, a, in an oppressive society. I don't think anyone who lived in East Germany feels thinks that this is a great piece of terminology. And then you get that there was that attempt to say that Facebook sells your data. Well, Facebook doesn't sell your data. That's the whole point. The advertisers don't get your data. But it's an easier way to describe what's wrong. Your story, Benedict, you, you you said earlier you wouldn't describe yourself as a journalist, but you're, you are publishing to, is it 150 or 160,000 people? Uh, it's about 160,000 subscribers. 160, which is, I mean, that's a lot of people and, and probably, I would guess, from the subject matter, quite influential people. You seek to understand the world. Uh, that's what I would say looking at your output when people ask you what what do you do what do you say well so there's various ways you can describe it you know dick around on the internet for money i think one of the ways i i i think i try to sort of translate that's one of the things i do is to translate between the engineers and the product people who are making stuff and the rest of the world that will experience that and that will change it and vice versa. I try to ask, well, what are the things that actually matter that are going to change things or not? I try and work out like what the right questions to ask might be. I mean, there's a great quote from a physicist called Wolfgang Pauli. He's one of these sort of eccentric physicists and there's all sorts of stories about. And there's a story that he was asked to look at a graduate student's work and he said it's not even wrong. And what that meant was that, you know, to be sort of, which is kind of the Karl Popper's point, to be scientific, it must be testable. There must be a hypothesis in there that you could test and analyze and say, well, maybe it's right and maybe it's not. And this is how you would tell. And this, this poor student's work didn't reach that level. You couldn't actually work out whether it was right or wrong. And I think that's always kind of what I try and do is to try and say, well, how would one, should one analyze this? What questions should you ask to try and understand how important it might be, whether it would work, whether it would not work, how this is going to change? Thank you so much, Benedict, for talking to me. You speak fast and your conversation has a high density of ideas. I really appreciate it. 